Let's be honest, most digital banking experiences just aren't that amazing. Learn how more than 180 banks worldwide, including Barclays, Deutsche Bank, and BBVA, innovate faster with Strands as their trusted fintech partner. To find out more, visit strands.com today. Critical mass. That's what turns the smallest ventures into life-changing forces. Reach critical mass by joining Temenos Open Marketplace for fintechs. Opening up access to 2,000 of the world's largest financial institutions. Don't just take our word for it. Temenos Marketplace has just won Reader's Choice Best Emerging Innovative Technology Product and Service at the 2016 Banking Technology Awards. Join Temenos now. We make the money go round. Welcome to Fintech Insider News. My name's Simon Taylor, and as usual, we're coming to you live from London, the very heart of Fintech, up here in 11FS Towers at Level 39. Fintech Insider News, we think is the best podcast dedicated to everything that's happened in banking and Fintech around the world in the past week. We've scoured the internet and read all of the most interesting news for the week, and then we've distilled that down so you don't have to. <laughs> you sound so excited this week. <laughs> <laughs> Can you blame me? With us this week, we've got Chris Skinner, our resident bestseller. Chris, say hello. Yo, hello. Of course, we've got yourself, Jason Bates. Hello. Interrupting superstar now, I love you. Um, and David Breer, um, fresh from meetings around the world and doing all kinds of naughty things. David, say hello. Hello. It's the naughty boy. And we have some fantastic guests for the news. Back with us once again, we have Alessandro Hitami, managing partner at The Pacemakers. Alessandro. Hello, hello. Good to have you with us. And of course, Andra Sinea joins us for the first time, fellow Anthemist group. Andra, good to have you with us. Hi. Guys, it's so good to have a good bunch of people to run through the news with. And first story up was probably my favorite story of the week, if not ever. Um, this is Will I Am is reportedly doing a deal with app-only bank Atom that could see the singer invest. So does anybody know what's going on here? Jason, have you read this one? I read it and I actually laughed for quite a while um, before trying to think about whether this makes sense. I mean, in the end, he's being given the option to acquire three and a half million shares at £1.15 each over three years. So they think that equates to about £4 million stake in the startup bank. And for that, he's going to be a board advisor. He's going to help them with social media. He's going to attend board meetings. And that just blows my mind that Will I Am you know, from TV, from The Voice, is going to sit on the board of Atom Bank with his Lady Gaga sunglasses on saying, no, you, we've got to do something different. So does he sit with his back to the board and if they, he likes what he hears, he has a chair that spins round? <laughs> but there, must be some, there must be some logic to this. Who, who, well, who's going to stand up I mean, they're going to be talking about products and services and ideas for the app and every time that there's a good one, you know, when I am, I'll say, that's dope. And that's all they need, you know. Just a I, bit of dope. I, I genuinely fine. don't think we need anything else to talk about for at least an hour because there's just so much material to go on on this one. Um, but I, wow, exactly. Yeah. I, but I, it's, it's hard to see. I think the the most sort of disturbing thing about this one, if I'm honest with you, is that uh, yeah, yeah, that, that yeah, we're not talking about the black eyed peas anymore. We're going on to actually the the deal in terms of what we're doing. And and I think this is the most disturbing thing for challenger banks. Really, is this 
This is Atom displaying very similar behaviors that we would expect from some of the incumbent organizations. You know, it's bringing in a celebrity to gain credibility, to really sort of push and do it in that direction, which it doesn't feel like they need to do. You know, if I was a, well, a hungry startup. That when I am has got te technology vision. I mean, he was speaking about technology visionary products and wearables two or three years ago and you know, became part of the circuit on the tech circuit at that time. But his wearable was a gold iPhone case. Like, it, it really was, he had a market stall. It did but, bomb. But, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I, wow. I do remember the reviews of it being rather dicey, I have to say, in terms mm. of what was coming through. But, Alessandro, what do you think? I think you're being a bit unkind here. Um, if you So there's a good track record of, of media people investing in intelligent companies. So look at Ashton Kutcher, for example. He's got, um, what is it called, A-grade investments. And they've put money in the likes of uh, Spotify and Uber and so on. So... I'm not sure if it's it's a it's 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 an unusual deal. I think price wise, it's a bit expensive also. But um, I, I think this is quite different. Can, though, he isn't can it? make an injection of you know, an interesting perspective that is slightly different. Uh, and if you believe truly that digital banking is beyond from beyond selling financial services by selling a user experience, maybe he can bring something to the table. Now, I'm not saying that was a great deal, but I think you know let's give the guy a chance to see what happens. I think. I, I was not so um, impressed with the Will I Am thing. Um, what drew my attention was that part of this uh, funding round, actually BBVA will go over the 30% ownership of the share. So they have the right to make uh, an offer for the rest of the share. So it, it, this is more significant for the bank than Will I Am. I mean, he comes, goes. I don't think it's even that they uh, have the right to. They they kind of have to make an offer. Yeah, it, yeah, indeed. That's the right thing. It's a mandatory offer. Yeah. It's almost like a great day to release bad news. You know, you, you wrap it up in another headline. So when I am gets all the headline, but actually the real news is yeah. BBVA have to buy Atom. Is this like yeah. a £6 million switcheroo so we didn't notice that uh, that point? So. And there is some speculation in some of the press. Um, I mean, this one was on Business Insider, um, this article, that, that that might actually be the case. And actually giving an option to some outsider on the shares prevents the triggering of that um, mandatory requirement, which is pretty interesting, right? It could be more that, that this is a really great red herring. But from a PR perspective, I, I take Alessandro's point that, look, it's great to try and get somebody with a different perspective feeding into boards. And generally, I'm all for that concept. It's the right thing to do. And you know, one of the early investors in Uber was Jay-Z. So we're not saying celebrities can't be good investors. Just this particular celebrity with this particular celebrity's track record, I don't know is the right choice. But I think there is something here about you know spending to try and get attention. This brings us back to our old hobby horse. I mean, just in the news this week, we had HSBC announce that they're investing $2.1 billion in digital transformation. Whoa. Last week we had, was it um, BNP, BNP Paribas, Paribas with $3, billion. $3 yeah. billion in digital transformation. So that's what five point one billion US dollars going into digital transformation from two banks headlines in in less than a week. This we're gonna throw a load of money at things, must have a lot of people salivating because it, it doesn't seem like smart money when you announce the headline before you announce what you're gonna do. It's you know earned media versus paid for media. If you're advertising or doing something around digital banking, surely the best outcome is to release something amazing that gets a lot of coverage because of how amazing it is. And then in the absence of that, well, you've got to pay for the coverage. And how do you pay for it? Well, we've either got this telephone number of investment we're getting, or we've got this celebrity, or we've got something else, you know, that's a, a veneer or some kind of 
innovation theatre. You know, it's that continual look for headlines in the absence of real delivery that I think is part of the problem. Okay, so next one up, uh, David, was one here in the New York Times where Silicon Valley tried to upend banks and now it looks like it's working with them. And David, you spoke to Nathaniel Popper at the New York Times. So I'm joined now by Nathaniel Popper. So Nathaniel, you're a reporter for the New York Times. Uh, thanks very much for joining us, first and foremost. Thank you for having me. Uh, you wrote a really interesting article this week uh, called Silicon Valley Tried to Upend Banks and Now It Works With Them, which I actually thought was a, a really interesting and, and actually a very sort of refreshing message back into, uh, back into the industry. So tell us a little bit more about the thinking about the article. Sure. I mean... I mean, I have been following this for some time. I I came to this realm first from covering both Wall Street and covering uh, Bitcoin, um, which are kind of the two poles of this, uh, you know, and, and certainly, you know, five years ago, seven years ago, Bitcoin, all the, everyone was talking about it as something that could sort of fundamentally change uh, the financial industry and, you know, really replace banks in a sense. That was the hope for it. Um, and I think that kind of idea and that ideology spread out from Bitcoin to the rest of this fintech realm, to these other uh, venture capitalists and, and entrepreneurs that, you know, the, people were going to fundamentally disrupt the banks. And what I've seen over time and, and really most of all over the last year or two is that that narrative has, has, has totally changed. Well, it's a it's a really interesting one, isn't it? And I think the you know to your point in the article, really, there's a a kind of a pivot around companies like Moven um, to really be suppliers to those organisations that they were originally challenging uh, for for dominance. So you know that dynamic really in that in the industry changes quite dramatically, doesn't it? It it does. I think when you go to conferences these days, you know. Last fall at, at Money 2020, all the talk was about partnerships and and how how banks and and fintech startups were going to work together. But you know, actually, one of the things that led me to to, to write this story was realizing that within the industry, this is this is quite widely recognized. But I realized some of the other tech reporters that I work with, that message hadn't gotten through to them. And they said, what, aren't, those, aren't these companies still uh, you know, trying to replace the banks? Um, you know, and there, were, there were so much, so much of the uh, loud advertisements and so forth, forth were um, in this very brash, you know, we're going to replace the banks way that I think gave people a sense that that was going to happen. Um, and I think within the industry, there really has been a significant uh, shift. Um, although you still see this language out there. I mean, you know, in, in the United States, SoFi is, I think, still the most aggressive with this sort of language. SoFi, which is, you know, began as a student lender, but really wants to be, I think, a full service bank. And they, their whole marketing language is don't bank. SoFi and you know th- this idea that the banks are hopelessly uh, mired in the past. Um, so this language is still out there, but I think you know they have have become much more reliant on banks uh, over time, um, as have you know the other lenders here. 
And, you know, it's, it's worth noting that I think um, this is particularly true in the United States. I think, I think there is still more, um, there are still bigger ambitions uh, overseas to a degree, you know, in the UK and, and Europe, but I think even more so in, in Asia and Africa, where I think there is a, still a real possibility that, you know, some of these sort of startups, some of these non-bank companies will uh, will occupy a more central place in the financial landscape of the future. Yeah, really appreciate you joining us, Nathaniel, anyway. So um, thanks for spending the time and I look forward to having you back soon. Thank you very much to Nathaniel. So what do we think about this one in the room? Uh, when you're a startup and you have limited resources and you're finding yourself competing with an organization that has $2 billion to spend on digital transformation every year, I think you realize that suddenly that you may have problems in growing, especially if this challenger that the company you want to challenge uh, is actually realizing that what you're doing is the right thing to do and they come, they come after you. So I think it's a realization, firstly, that building a banking business is hard mm-hmm. and fintech is not easy from a variety of reasons, but especially because of regulation. But is this a, you know, maybe we've seen the, you know, the first wave of fintech being probably too far ahead of their time. You know, we saw obviously with BPC acquiring Fedor and we've seen BBVA acquiring uh, Simple and and move and pivoting into becoming a, um, you know, more of a vendor than a challenger to the banks. You know, really, if, if those three or four companies were launching today and probably in the regulatory environment we've got in the UK, the world would probably be very different, wouldn't it? Maybe you're looking in the wrong places. And that um, I was just blogging this week about a conversation with one of the financial firms, um, big ones, uh, where they're putting most fintech into what they call sustainable innovation. It's just improving or you know, taking friction out of the current processes in the financial structures and said there isn't really any disruptive innovation in the sense of Clayton Christensen's definition. But there is disruptive innovation. It's just not in Europe and America. It's in Asia and in particular um, in sub-Saharan Africa where you're seeing mobile financial inclusion. And if Clayton Christensen's definition of disruptive innovation is that someone comes in at the bottom end of the market doing something that looks irrelevant and then upscales relentlessly, that's going to come from the telcos. And so you know, when you look at, um, and I know we're going to talk about financial later, but um, when you look at the ants, 10 cents, badoos of this world, that's where you're going to see the real disruptive change coming through. And um, Google, Apple, Facebook and Amazon um, are never going to launch a bank because basically they're re- regulated not to. Yeah, I mean, we were, we were talking with a, one of a global head of propositions from a, for a big bank not so long ago. And he very much had the similar view that on one hand, he was being expected to move the dial to, to digitize, to remove people from the workforce, to, to make the, the bank more efficient. And so that led you down one route of essentially, you know, using all kinds of work, uh, technologies that glued systems together and, and started to remove people king from one system to another. Uh, and that's great in terms of uh, how it looks for his business unit for his propositions. But at the same time, while he might be moving the big dial, he's taking the the bank down a a route of more glue, more lines, more connections. So it's getting more and more efficient, but heading towards a wall beyond which, you know, what do you do? There's two things. There's one one specific thing that both Sub-Saharan Africa and and, and in China in particular have is that, that in common is the fact that they're not replacing a gigantic incumbent. 
And here we have these big banks in France and Germany and the UK and Italy that in Spain that uh, are hard to displace. In, in, in Kenya and Tanzania, you weren't replacing much. These people did not have a bank, they have bank access. In China, the, the banking banks exist, but not as, the, as accessible as they used to be. So I think that's what's really happening. So we did um, an episode of Fintech Insider Insights, um, which will go on probably after the show goes out, with the CEO of WeChat Africa. And we also had uh, the chap who runs propositions for Safaricom in M-Pesa. And they were saying basically that this is solving a problem for people who had nothing. There was there was no way to you could get money before. There was no way you could send money. There was no way you could buy things from a merchant without cash. And that was your only option. And moving around all of your month's worth of cash in your pocket meant there's a pretty good chance that was going to be stolen from you, especially if you live in a violent area. So this is solving a real problem for somebody where banks just can't go because their cost of operations are too high. That's dope. <laughs> Bring him back. Thanks, man. We have Will I am here. Throw this in every five minutes. <laughs> that was Chris. I am there. Uh, so, Jason, no, I'm just uh, so far. Yeah. <laughs> Next uh, story up from the FT, Jason, is the trouble with free banking for challenge lenders. Um, what's this one about? So, this is interesting. It's Philip. Orgar, is that how you say his name? Former director of TSB. And I guess he's really putting forward that traditional banker view that free banking is a real problem, that the oligopoly is safe. Look at the failure of the co-op on Williams and Glynn. Look at the costs of banking infrastructure being a, a, a barrier to entry. Bank branches are reassuring presence on the high street. It's the bundle of services that customers love um, and that new products are easy to replicate. Just don't buy it. I mean, it really is that sort of commodity financial product viewpoint that actually a lot of of senior bankers still hold on to, I think. Almost all traditional banks, um, if you talk with product people, they think about their product as standardized, take it or leave it. And they believe, they truly believe that that's the truth forever it's it's uh, it's like a universal truth which is <laughs> which is not the case i mean people want personalization uh, and all their other experiences in the digital world point toward this so yeah mm. they live in their own reality whatever that is yeah well we we talk very often about this sort of analog products sold through digital channels mentality. And I, and I think this is pretty good sort of evidence of that from uh, from this gentleman. But I think the idea that um, until new players find a compelling customer offer, well, most of them are literally hinging their existence around just doing that, aren't they? Which is kind of amazing um, in terms of where they're going. So uh, yeah, I kind of think this is a an interesting point that he was made, but um, but I think the um, time is probably going to be the test on this one. So what baffles me on this one, David, is that we've we've seen the the same business model and the only business model be the business model for a long time. It's we'll charge you fees and we'll make money on the net interest income from lending you stuff. And there's just been no innovation in that. And we've we've seen the beginnings of like we're going to package accounts and you know we're going to have like these packaged accounts that aren't free, but the benefits you get with them are like. Eh, you know, they're not that great. Whereas consumers are willing to pay a subscription for services that they think are really good. They'll pay a subscription for Spotify. They'll happily pay one for Amazon Prime. They'll happily pay one for Netflix and, and everything else. So the consumer is definitely willing to pay if they're seeing value. But the type of value banks are giving is is probably a little bit different. And, and I think they're missing something there. There's a new type of value they could be giving that's value add and revenue generating that's completely missing. Well, this is one of the key things in the trends of 2017 
team when we were summarizing what was going on on the blog. Um, and basically, two key trends is fintech integrating with the Internet of Things and fintech integrating with social media. So social and financial come together. And we've seen that with Venmo, Paytm, Alipay, where you bring together the ecosystem in such a way that it doesn't actually have financial services outside the network. Mm. It's inside the network. And that's what this is missing, that if you start to give that real convenience and frictionless experience to the customer, they have to happily pay for it. One thing has to be said that the free banking is a barrier to entry for a company that's coming in through a current account as a proposition. So that that's something, and we see it even outside the UK with what happened to number 26, shutting down some accounts because people were withdrawing money from ATMs. But I, th- I don't agree with this article because what's happening is actually the providers that he's referring to as oligopolies are actually becoming digital. So if you if you think about any the the average big bank, this is an, an average big bank which we have worked at in the past. They have at some point over fifty percent of their sales are digital, and the size of the digital team is twelve hundred people. So the remaining seventy eight thousand people are yes manufacturing the product, but they're also serving that. So there's an economies of economies inherent with digital that any bank would be crazy to leave on the table. Now there will be a tail of people that will always want the branches, but these are believe it or not not very profitable. Uh, and if you look at internet penetration, internet penetration, yes, is very high on on the young, but it's also very high on the wealthy. Okay, so the banks that are actually delivering digital services are actually finding their high net worth individuals are actually going online rather than do, going to the branches. So if you if you have an yacht in in the south of France, you don't want to go to your branch on uh, High Street, Kensington. Okay, you want to be able to do it there and then. And I think that's one point that is missed. It's not that the banks will be replaced. The banks will be dif- different. And that's that's what's missing in this article. Thank you for that unique insight into the lifestyle of Alexander. And now we're seeing, Chris, that in Finextra, RBS have to become a fintech uh, fund and high street outlet for challenger banks under an HMT remedy. So now they're actually being forced to collaborate with the fintechs. What's going on here, Chris? Yeah, there's two pieces to the story, basically, that um, Royal Bank of Scotland is a government-owned bank. And so Her Majesty's Treasury is saying they're going to pump £750 million into the bank to bridge between challenger startup banks and the business community that needs to have more services and capabilities given to them. So the proposed package of measures include a fintech investment fund, which is administered by an independent body, funding for challenger banks to help them incentivize SMEs to switch accounts away from RBS to the challenger banks. Um, RBS granting business customers of challenger banks access to its branch network to do their cash and check handling and a few other pieces. But this is part of a much bigger picture in that um, a year ago in Gogoburn, uh, which we call Goodwinburn in the old days, the RBS headquarters opened a fintech hub for Scotland. And fintech is estimated to be worth about £6 billion a year for the UK economy. And so really it's all about the government strengthening their support of the fintech challenger startup community to give more competition in the UK and using the bank as a conduit to deliver that. But do you not think it's a slap on the wrist? It's a, you didn't do Williams and Glynn, you said you were going to do it. And therefore, to keep with that competition imperative, we're going to essentially enforce some things on you that are going to hurt. You've got to actually support the competition and support you know people who are going to come along and, and yeah, take I mean, it's saying that they have too much of a, a, a monopoly and under European rules they were meant to shrink, and they didn't shrink. So you're going to be forced to shrink in another way. Yeah. But having said that... Um, you know, wherever banks shrink, it's amazing how quickly they expand again afterwards. Um, the figure I always use is in 1999, 69% of the UK deposits were with the big four banks. Uh, last year, 77%. 
you know, even with all the things that we've seen with you know other banks starting up like Metro, et cetera, and all the change in fintech, the big bank stranglehold on the UK economy is you know, never going to go away. Oh, we'll see. <laughs> never going to go away. I, I think the, the thing I find, you know, I've read through this article a number of times and the, I can't really sort of see a positive here for RBS. You know, like this feels like they're being told to sort of let blood, you know, like they're being sort of held down and leeches put on them. And it sort of feels and so strange. they're really going to want to do that, aren't they? I mean, well, but, but the, and, and I think but the thing is... that's why it's an independent fund administered independently. It's not run by RBS in terms of the fund for the challenger banks. Mm. It's, it's run by HMT. So what, what's RBS's point in this? It's just they're keeping some, they the they're keeping some customers they the network for the, for the customer. Yeah. So they're being forced to allow c- competitors' customers to access their branch services. So if I'm a digital bank startup like or a civilized bank, for example, I, I can now say, or funding circle, I can now say, well, look, I'll give you loans and I'll support your business as, an, as a small business. And by the way, if you want to come and talk to us in the branch, just pop into RBS. I think the truth is that they tried to spin off Williams & Glenn. They couldn't do it. And, and the reason why they couldn't do it is because they couldn't separate the two platforms. And that's that's a well-known fact. So they're creating this smoke and mirrors thing that they're going to pay a price to try to get the European Union to say, fine, okay, go ahead. Two years will pass, Brexit will happen, and nobody will worry, and they retain the branches. Uh, I'm being cynical here, mm-hmm. okay? So I, I think it's a, you know, I can't imagine how this fund will make any support, any help, give any help to any fintech that is worthy of respect because delivery in branches is the last thing in the world, and and the and the post office is doing a great job already anyway, so... Yeah. Can I add another level of cynicism? Please do, Andrew. Please <laughs> do. Let's lay it on. You've yeah. heard the so, show. No, no. So, so to me, separating systems in a bank or putting systems in a bank together, it's in a way very similar. So it's about um, integration. So we have here 750 million, and we just read about 2 billion that HSBC will spend for some digital transformation. So no, no massive stuff, just... Uh, the known domain, the known domain of HSBC, let's improve it. Now, we all know and we have seen that the collaboration between the fintech world and banks fails at integration. It's not simple. People come from the fintech world with the expectation that they can integrate with, with in a way that is familiar to them or they have expectations about data availability, frequency, richness, and so on. They all remain very surprised when bank tells them, we don't have that, we cannot give you that. And that, that's one thing. But the other aspect is if you want a challenger bank to function on a structure like RBS, which has been proven as not being uh, very efficient, so it has some cost that it needs to pass to the challenger bank sitting on top. Only those costs kill the proposition. So I think the challenger banks who would bite this, you know, go and integrate with RBS, will spend a hell of a lot of effort and money, and I don't think they will achieve what they want. So Uh, you're incentivizing fintechs to use something that has, you know, these are great incentives, but go use this thing that's actually really costly and is not going to help you what you achieve. Yes, and it, I, I'm afraid that they will be locked in projects which will be very long and very costly. And, uh, you know, for the bank, it's okay. They've lost uh, several hundred million before. It's not a, a new thing. They had failed projects for this uh, amount. But for the challenger banks or for the fintechs, it will be a choice between life and death. 
I think it's going to be so interesting to see how this one sort of moves forward because, like you say, it, it doesn't seem like a good deal for the, the bank and it really doesn't seem like a good deal for the challengers. And what does that fund for customers, the Williams and Glenn customers? What are they getting? Yeah. Well, I, I did see actually there's a so there's been a, a letter gone out to all of the Williams and Glynn customers, haven't they? Basically saying, you wait. <laughs> it was a very long, very polite wait and see what happens letter, which, um, like you say, is very, very confusing if you're a customer of these banks. It really is. And I wonder what that fund's going to invest in um, and who's going to be sitting on top of it and, uh, you know, what companies you know will end up with funding as a result. If it's not, the, if it's HMT running it, it's not the market, then, you know, it, does this disturb market forces and mean things that would have never got investments, get investments? Definitely an interesting one. Um, switching gears here a little bit, we have an article um, coming from Standard Digital um, saying that banks are taking on Empisha that we, uh, we've talked about a number of times on the show with their own money transfer service. So this feels a bit like um, you know, 10 years too late. But banks have activated their own interbank switch to enable customers to transfer money from one bank account to another um, in what's likely to you know, open up competition. Uh, the Kenyan Bankers Association secured approval from the regulator to allow those interbank transactions for as little as 10 shillings. So it's, it's pretty cheap, um, but it's directly trying to compete with M-Pesa. Platforms aimed at kind of low-end and high-end customers. Um, and the, the idea is to warn, you know, to get the unbanked population to start using banks. But to me, it feels like it's nice that 10 years later, you've put this payment system in but that, that competes with Safaricom, but haven't all the customers already started using Safaricom for the last 10 years? And why would they suddenly come into a branch and go through KYC so that they can start using your system? Something feels like it's it's missing here. I spoke to Leslie Ann Vaughan, the co-creator of M-Pesa, about this to get some perspective. I'm joined by Leslie Ann, who was the co-founder and co-creator of M-Pesa, who we've had on the show a number of times. Leslie Ann, the story that we were talking about in the news show this week is that uh, a number of the banks in Kenya are budding together to create an M-Pesa competitor. Um, I'm assuming you've seen this and may have some thoughts on, on what the strategy is here and on what they're trying to achieve. This is a long time in the, in, the, in the works, and it's finally become something that's real and commercial. It looks a lot like PayM. It's being able to put a phone number on the front of your bank account and having a business model and a, and a charging strategy that is kind of competitive to MPESA, if you like. Um, but in a nutshell, that's kind of what's going on with this new switch. It's interesting. Um, Do you think there's a real threat here to Safaricom? Do you think it's likely what, to play out? What I loved was the day that the Twitter feed broke that news is that Safaricom tweeted, competition is good for us. This helps us innovate. And I think they're entirely on the money there. And so I think it's good for Kenya that there is a new new element in play. I think there's evidence that interoperability, for example, in Tanzania has really uplifted the activity of these accounts. So that can only be a good thing for, for Kenya also. I mean, obviously it's a bit different in Kenya. But as we know from PayM, right, build it, they will come, no. So we do need to see the banks actually do something with this platform. That's very key. Uh, Leslie Ann, I think that's a tremendous insight. Thank you so much for joining us on Fintech Insider News. Thank you very much. Alrighty, thank you very much, Leslie Ann. Um, next story up, David, we've got one here in Bloomberg where Facebook Messenger now lets you send money with TransferWise. We've been mooting this for quite some time. It's, it seems like it's finally happened. What's, what's going on here? Yeah, it's a story with, I guess, 
A lot of potential, but not a lot of detail. So Facebook Messenger now lets you send money with TransferWise is the headline, and they've basically expanded upon that point in, in, in entirety through the, the article. So we're probably going to have to use our imagination quite a lot here. But the idea is that it's uh, opening it up across 50 countries, 600 different currency exchanges through that, which is pretty impressive in terms of where we're going. It's interesting that the first thing to integrate with Facebook is international transfers rather than just local payments, I would say. But um, what do you guys think? This isn't the first. I mean, Asimo integrated uh, in August. PayPal, Stripe, Visa, MasterCard, American Express all have payment bots, and uh, as does Alipay. So for me, I wonder if this is, again, that great TransferWise PR machine at work to try and position it as being, whoa, look, TransferWise, you know, first to market again, when actually it's not. So, so there's one story, I think, on this, uh, on remittances and payments specifically for this story. But I think more interesting is, I think as Alessandro was talking about earlier, the move of payments away from the banking app out into the the context of where customers are. But this feels very fragmented. So if I'm using a bit of Asimo here, a bit of Stripe there, maybe then the bank's got its own bot. Like, where's the interoperability in any of this? And and where are the stats that somebody comes out and says, hey, we've we've started putting billions through this? I mean, one of the things um, PayPal does a lot of, Stripe does a lot of, Square does a lot of, is look how many billions have been through our platform in the past year, and this is our growth. And they'll confidently tell that to the market as part of their growth story. I'm not seeing that on you know, on the Facebook Messenger payment side, I'm not really seeing that come out of Apple Pay, which says to me that they're way below expectations. I mean, do you have thoughts on that, Alessandra? Well, I'm trying to compare what the user experience in using one of these bots on, on, on Facebook and what I would do on WeChat. And I think the what's striking is that you, when, when you're on Facebook, you're going to TransferWise, you're going to Azimo, you're going to PayPal. Uh, in WeChat, it's integrated. And I think that is the big value add of these type of services, that they have to be seamless and visible, uh, integrated within the proposition rather than a place you can go. And uh, I think that's what's missing here. It's, it's going to be a really interesting one. You know, at the point where you've got a chat where you've got to remember what, um, you know, I know we've talked about this a, a lot before, but chat interfaces start to get incredibly complex when you've got to literally remember every command to kind of, you know, it feels like we're... We went to the the extreme of what uh, you know a really nice user interface was, and now we're sort of moving back towards DOS. But but I think the, those chatbots though are often like messenger bots. They're not chats that you're actually using your voice with. It's like conversational. And so one of the things you'll see quite often is you mention a date and that you want to do something in Facebook Messenger, and it'll say set reminder question mark. Um, so it's trying to get clever and contextual and understand where it can be helpful in the middle of your chat conversation. And on our platform, 11FS Pulse, we have the WeChat videos and people can can kind of take a look at, you know, what does the WeChat chat platform look like? It's actually quite contextual. Like you're in a conversation and you just press the button because it's quite contextual. It's figuring out what you might mean. Mm. Whereas um, Facebook Messenger, I have to go install that bot into Facebook Messenger before it has that intelligence first. And that to me is the chasm. But I think what's going to happen is going back to the integration of social and financial, that over time you're going to see um, a bit like downloading apps on a smartphone. Uh, you download these bots into Facebook and it just 
automatically will work. So whatever you, you happen to use, you, you just click and then it's going to be there and you can use it. Mm. The issue then becomes discoverability of these things and putting marketing behind them, which is perhaps what transfer What is the do. problem? The thing is, the interesting point is, again, going back to what, what digital is, digital banking is all about is, again, there, it's a product delivered through digital channels in this case. It's not solving, solving a problem. In the WeChat world, they are trying to enmesh themselves or weave themselves into your life. Here, it's a service that they provide, which is a different so to Simon's point, I really don't think Messenger has quite penetrated in the way that Facebook would want it to. And I, and I think they've got to do something quite significant, I think, to kind of move people away from the the, the sort of WeChats of, of this world in terms of doing things. So, you know, I think we'll, we'll start to see probably marketing dramatically ramping up around that over the next couple of months. And you know, see where they're at and with all the uh, additional features they're launching. Indeed. Um, Chris, next story we've got is one about uh, Liverpool receiving its own digital currency. What's going on there? Yeah, you'll never pay a loan. Um, <laughs> A-L-O-N-E, by the way, not A-L-E loan. Um, <laughs> <laughs> We're going to get complaints about that. Let's <laughs> not go down that route. Um, but basically, yeah, the Liverpool is launching a local currency, and uh, it's the Liverpool local pound, but it's a, li- a digital local currency, which makes it different to the things we've seen in Totnes and in uh, Brixton and other markets where they have their own independent currencies. And it's an interesting evolution of the concepts of community currencies that's been around for a long, long time. And the whole idea of a community currency is that you meant to spend the money, you're not meant to save the money. And you use local currency with local stores and encourage more local merchants and more local business to grow as a result. In fact, um, it's interesting, it's based on Kolu, which is the Israeli uh, company that also launched eToro. Um, and the, you download the Kolu app and you actually get charged if you keep money in the app. You've got to spend the money. Um, so the longer you keep money in the app, the more you're going to lose money, uh, which will appeal to lots of Liverpool people, I'm sure. Um, and merchants are charged £25 a month to subscribe to the service. Um, but they should, as a result, expect to get a lot more local business coming through. I think it's a great, great idea. I mean, I'm a big fan of community currencies and have been for a long, long time. Um, and mainly because I think the idea of community currencies encourages more um, philanthropy and more community sharing. And that's the whole idea, that uh, it helps the community thrive. So this is bringing about local. It's not a global digital currency. It's already been proven to work in Israel. I'm sure it'll get to be interesting to see what it does in Liverpool. So merchants have to pay £25 a month. There's a levy of 5% fee on users when they take money out of circulation. So yes, I buy the kind of big vision of and the supporting the local community. But but if you strip that away, this is super expensive as a as a way of using and spending money. So I don't see the the drive to engage customers it's the in, in something that's not only good for them but also then good for the community but as well. It's the way the community currency is designed to work. That it's, it's expensive if you don't use the money. Um, and there's a really interesting book by a central banker from Belgium, Bernard Leerser, called The Future of Money. It came out about 1998. And he's one of the advocates of this currency. And the whole idea of it is that um, the way we design money, and Bitcoin is a great example, is to hoard it and keep it and try and make more money. And the whole idea of community currencies is actually spend it so that there's more commerce in the community. The community grows and flourishes as a result. Surely negative interest rates are going to have, going to have the same effect. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> I don't know. What do you guys think? I, I think it's an interesting one because I, I can see this type of local currency work when there is no sort of strong alternative. But to your point, uh, and actually, the in, in economies where stimulating of uh, of spending is a is a thing, this type of thing would work really, really well. But when you've got you know a ten pound note that doesn't change from a ten pound note to a nine pound ninety five note overnight, you know, then yeah. then why would you take that risk as a you know as a person to do it, you know? And I, and I think there's a lot to be said for kind of local communities, local economies, and potentially if they could get the level of discount that would be relevant to, to, to using this currency over you know regular pounds and pence, then I, I might be able to see it. I, I, I've undermined one of these currencies, and I've got uh, five ten pound Brixton notes because they've got David Bowie on them. And so anything with David Bowie, I've got to have it. Uh, <laughs> but I guess that you know, behavior change is hard. Yeah. Uh, getting anybody, the, how much did chip and pin cost the UK to try and make the behavior change? How long has it taken for contactless to really gain adoption? And how much money and marketing have Visa and others put behind that single behavior change? And that's with a currency you already know how to use. So now you're just in one community, something that probably doesn't have that much marketing behind it. There's a bunch of people in five shops that are in their own like community and, and co-op arrangement that, that probably love this thing. But it, does it ever get out of that Petri dish and become something real? Who benefits from it? Because you have, obviously, the local merchant uh, pays £25 to be able to accept these. But then there's there's the, the consumer. And this consumer has decided at some point to own the, this uh, Liverpool currency. How did that happen? Yeah. Did he actually put pounds into some machine that converted them from uh, pounds to Liverpool thing? Or did he go work for somebody and did some work and somebody paid him mm. in Liverpool coins? And would I want that money? If you know, why would I accept money that for my work that I can only convert convert in certain stores and not across the territory? So, as a consumer, I'm very much disadvantaged. In in the Brixton case, it was a political statement, okay, and it, it made sense because you know I'm alternative. I do this, this and that, and I do that. In Italy, there were digital current, there were alternative currencies in the 70s because the state wasn't printing money, so there wasn't any change there. So people started making money out of and and it was photocopied actually so it was a big issue uh, but uh, they were doing that because they were solving a problem i don't understand what the problem is that they're solving if if local business want to do more business you know offer a better product i, I think that's definitely going to be the thing you know I, I have enough problems trying to get local uh, london cabbies to take uh, scottish 10 pound notes never mind trying to convince them that this thing that i've picked up from liverpool is actually local currency you know it's going to be impossible my favorite local currency is a thing in canada called the demi have you heard of this? Nope. Completely non-technical, but amazingly elegant solution. And no one knows who, who invented it, apparently. But they started to show up where people would take a $10 or a $20 note and cut it in half. And then each know. half would be worth half of what the full note would be. So you take a $10 note, cut it in half, and they're, they're, they're worth $5 each. And the local shops would then accept these things because you could only spend them in the local local region. But what was interesting is the forgery was going to be almost impossible because it's the same as a note. You couldn't go and swap them for a, you know, a, a, a different one. But it's but as a, an elegant money creation and local currency unit, it was lovely. There's just something really nice about uh, it, there's almost Bitcoin-esque mm -hmm. in how it's created and managed as a, as a local oh, currency. 
Um, speaking of good stories, uh, there's one on uh, Engadget where Bill Gates wants a robot tax to compensate for job losses. That's that's probably it's just a great headline, isn't it? But I think what we're seeing here is you know Elon Musk is really terrified of the AI overlords ending the planet. Bill Gates is as ever more sober, saying, "Hey, you know this transformation is going to be really significant. There are going to be job losses. There are a lot of people who have historically bet and bet well on the future of where how technology is going to change society." saying similar things, albeit in slightly different tones. Um, I think his logic behind why he wants this robot tax is to you know, pay for social care, pay for the elderly, and to give humans a basic income whilst robots have taken over what we do. This is obviously going to have an impact on how people get their income, how people spend their money, um, and how you know, banks and financial services operate. Will it mostly be robots in 20 years? I mean, Andrew, do you have some thoughts on that? Yeah, I have many thoughts on that. Because yeah. <laughs> uh, I'm thinking, okay, what I can do? So in, so in 10 years, I can still work and my work is not taken by robots. Um, right. But joke, joke, joke aside, uh, yes, robots will change massively the the work environment. And if you look what happens in US and how worried people were, okay, we want our jobs back and so on, those jobs will not be back. So they most of them are already taken by robots. But I think it's very interesting to look what happened in in Europe only uh, one week ago. So it was a, a, a document debated in European Parliament, which resulted in a recommendation for the European Commission. They didn't go for, the, for taxing the robots, but uh, definitely they started a necessary discussion about what a robot is, how we look at liabilities, and all the ethical implications which uh, working with robots um, will have. It's a very interesting paper, and uh, even if you are not interesting in, in interested in robots, when when you read it, you you understand how much the world will uh, will change. I think the the really interesting one on this one is that it's amazing the morality that you get to when you're a billionaire. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> Like, clearly, Bill Gates has invested so much time, so much effort in PCs, which arguably have taken out many jobs in terms of doing things with all of the stuff that they put forward for, for software. And it's the leisure that you get when you're a billionaire sitting on your yacht and kind of thinking things over that you suddenly start to worry about people and change. I think the point about this is, is a very profound one, because if, if, I, if I'm a factory owner, if I have a certain number of employees that deliver a product, manufacture a product, I suddenly bring a robot in. And uh, sorry, and manufacture these products. So they pay taxes on their income that they generate through me. They have a co- I have a cost of goods, and at the end of the year, well, my profits I pay taxes. If I replace these with a robot, okay, there's no income that goes to a robot, so the robot is not taxed. So I get an, and I get an efficiency on my profitability, even if the manuf- if the productivity is exactly the same. I suddenly have manufacturing with a lot lower costs, and this money goes out, and in theory, it's taxed. Now, what happens to the economy as a whole, that tax income that was supposed to go into social services mm-hmm. and protecting all this thing is no longer there. And it's gone into the pockets of the uh, corporate that is being taxed oftentimes at a much lower rate than the individual that would have contributed to that. And also, the government is given an additional cost, which is the cost of having to take care of these unemployed people that are no longer employed and they're not employable by... But also the concentration of wealth then also gets accelerated exactly. when an individual is then, is then controlling their robot army and you know, reaping all the rewards. And you might argue that the whole software eating the world theme we've been on for a few years has been what's created this next, next generation of billionaires anyway. Yeah. 
Another, another aspect of this tax, it's very similar with the CO2 tax. So people who look at systems and in system thinking, they look at systems which don't have uh, feedbacks to bring the systems in, in balance. So this is an example of man-made uh, negative feedback to bring the system in balance. Because if you take advantage of um, um, how robots advance and so on, they can replace a lot of stuff. But how do you, how do you bring it back so we can keep pace with it and at least develop the rules and the laws and uh, all, all these things. So it's, uh, So is there yeah. going to be some sort of weird offsetting me mechanism where they're going to pay some other company to create a bunch of jobs? But I, th I think the thing um, that I find sort of weird about this is that it seems to heavily punish large companies who are currently incredibly inefficient. So bringing this into a banking context, and you might quickly see where I'm going with this one, is that actually the lateral for us is about actually punishing banks moving to digital and digital banking because it's going to put branch staff, telephony staff out of business, which, you know, for me just doesn't make sense in the context of sort of just natural progression and natural selection. But it's the speed of that evolution and progression. And, you know, we've, we're reaching a point where if suddenly 1% of the US workforce who are drivers disappears overnight, combined with people losing their jobs in swathe because of automation and machine learning, if that happens in a five to 10 year period, that's, you know, societal level problem. Mm -hmm. If it happens over a 50 year period, you know, we can deal with it. Mm -hmm. And I, so I, I buy Andrew's point of, you know, what is the break to, to rampant tipping point change yeah. that could cause, you know, massive disturbance? There's an interesting article <laughs> on the FT today by some chap called Luciano Floridi. And he suggests that robots should be taxed as slaves in Roman eras, in the oh, Roman yeah. era. See, that was uh, what I was going to say. Like, <laughs> if it gets paid and, it, and it's paying taxes, what rights does it have? Like, robots have feelings too, man. Anyway, we've, we've covered this one quite well, and we've got a couple more we need to get through. Um, Chris, we've got our regular Ant Financial Biser thing slot, one here in Forbes. Um, that's uh, that's going to need a jingle at some point. Yeah, I it think comes up every week, doesn't it? Yeah, so, and um, financial buys. Yeah, yeah like indeed. It. Good. So why Ant Financial's $200 million investment in cacao could disrupt South Korean fintech is the story here in, uh, in Forbes. What, what's happening here, Chris? Yeah, I mean, Ant taking over the world gradually, um, starting from Asia, but also they're in Europe and America. They had various announcements recently about uh, agreements in the States to be in all the merchant checkout terminals. And uh, this one in particular is interesting because it's Cacao Corp, which is the equivalent of Facebook Messenger or WeChat in South Korea. 48 million users use the messaging platform, of which 14 million use the Kakao Pay service, which is integrated into the messaging system. And so what Ant is doing is basically saying that there'll be interoperability between Kakao Pay and Ant Financial, uh, so that Chinese customers in Korea can quite easily use the Kakao services and vice versa. Um, and also what's interesting is that, uh, and I hadn't realized that Ant has got a big stake in Paytm in India, uh, they send money in Thailand, uh, they're also in the Philippines, they're a global monster. They are indeed. This is, feels very much like just um, a user grab of payments customers and messaging customers, right? I mean, it's it's kind of, uh, this is regional expansion through acquisition. But I think it signals that we could see a lot more of this. You know, if there are pockets of small messaging services and small payment services, do they go and buy it? Do they go and buy M-Pesa or Safaricom? Like, it could get really interesting. Well, there's also the announcement, I think we talked about the other week, Ant raising $3 billion in debt to go and buy stuff. Mm -hmm. And so Ant Financial buys. <laughs> <laughs> I think, I think it's, it's interesting because Ant Financial, obviously, is a, it's a fabulous product and it's doing what it's designed to do, so to grow and to be profitable. And I think... 
what is who could be the alternative to Ant Financial or a competitor for Ant Financial? Like the only name that comes to mind is PayPal. And PayPal is completely passive, sitting comfortably away and doing the little things that it does. And PayPal should be worried, but PayPal should be more active. Yeah. PayPal should be out there. You know, they should not let MoneyGram go to Ant Financial. They should have stepped up. And they're one not. of the headlines this week was um, you know, PayPal on Venmo. Uh, and Venmo could be the, the Ant Financial competitor. Of but, the West, yeah, it really but, could be. But now the American banks are launched a competitor to Venmo yeah. to try and block it out called Zelle. Those bank competitors always look like PayM in the UK. They always have, they always just tend to just be really disappointing and I really crap. I don't worry too much about bank-to-bank. Bank, uh, yeah, transfers. like... It, it, in Spain, it, there's a big one too, if you look at how difficult it is to run. Uh, it, but Venmo could really be... Like, it's surprising they haven't put rocket fuel behind Venmo and tried to push it into more markets and get more oh, people. Mate, it's not outside the USA. I mean, why isn't it here? It makes no sense because Braintree has done really well in, yeah. in other markets. And, you know, that acquisition compared to the Venmo acquisition strikes me as chalk and cheese. You know, Braintree has become a fully fledged Stripe competitor. Like if you're starting a business and you want to acquire payments online, you want to accept payments for goods and services, you, you pick between Stripe or Braintree. Those are the two choices. So they're really up there. Their advertising is phenomenal. Why aren't they doing that with Venmo? They, the, it seems to me that that's the big payments opportunity in the world. So next story up is from Business Insider Insights. And one here says that Money Farm will likely see reasonable uptake of its products from Uber drivers. And I spoke to Sarah Kachansky, who's a senior research analyst for fintech at Business Insider in the UK. Okay, so I'm joined by Sarah Kachansky this morning. Sarah, you are a senior research analyst for fintech at Business Insider in the UK. Sarah, thank you for being with us. Thank you for having me. Sarah, you had a pretty interesting uh, set of ideas in your uh, BI intelligence report that went out in the past week. One that really caught my eye was Money Farm will likely see a reasonable uptake of its products from Uber drivers. Uh, can you tell us a little bit more about why that is, please? And what is Money Farm and, and why will Uber drivers be, be flocking to it? Sure. So um, this is uh, a story that sort of came out last week. Um, Uber, obviously, everybody knows who Uber are. Uh, Money Farm are a um, Italian and UK-based uh, robo advisor, which basically means I'm sure your listeners know, but it's um, it's wealth management, and they offer a range of products, including ISAs and pension accounts. What they've done is they've they've signed a partnership, a partnership agreement, and Uber is going to be offering its drivers Money Farm's products, um, ISAs and pensions in particular, at a discounted rate through through a, a co-branded app, as far as I understand it. They're also going to be providing those Uber drivers with um, some what they call financial education, um, which presumably is along the lines of you know money management and how to how to save well for retirement. It's a really interesting move uh, from my perspective. Um, there's a couple of reasons for that. One is you know as I'm sure everybody knows. Uber uh, drivers are still um, considered to be self-employed in this country. There was a tribunal last year which found against them, but that is ongoing. They're in the middle of a load of appeals. It's, it's going to drag out. So before there's any kind of um, uh, conclusion to that case, these, these drivers are, for the time being, not entitled to the employment rights that a full-time employee would be. Um, one of those employment rights um, in the UK as of next year will be um, an auto-enrolment in a pension by their employer. And that pension will be contributed to by their employer um, and they, they will be auto-enrolled in it unless they decide against it. But Uber drivers won't have access to that. So for those of them who are, are looking for, for a pension, which, you know, many, many people sort of still are. I think there's a very growing awareness, if you like, amongst people in this country that perhaps state pensions are not going to be what they need them to be 
when they retire and therefore are looking for a, a private option, um, Uber drivers are, are, are going to have to sort of be out there on their own looking for, for what they might, um, what, what pension they might you know, be able to get, what's best for them. Um, that can be a complicated market. Anybody who's ever tried to buy a, a pension privately would know that. Um, so if what Uber's doing is going to them and saying, look, guys, we know you'd like a pension. We're not going to give you one, but we're going to recommend you one. And it's going to come with a discount. To me, that seems very likely that it will take a significant, you know, money farm will see a significant amount of uptake of that product from those Uber drivers. That's um, hugely significant. I think you've got a pretty captive market there and a new type of employee in the in the gig economy who you know is not getting the protections of being an employee. Uh, therefore, they are this different class of, of kind of uh, you know, paid uh, small business, uh, but they, they don't necessarily have all the support that you would need at that small business. So somebody providing service to that seems to be a gap in the market. Uh, do you think this will become a trend or are we going to see more of this from, from fintech or is this just uh, pretty unique so far? It's not. So it's not unique in the UK. Um, in the in the US, Uber has partnered with Betterment um, to do a sort of similar kind of deal. Uh, Betterment's another robo advisor. The in the US, obviously, the benefits package is slightly different. Um, but I think I think it is a trend we we will see in the UK. I think you know, given the UK especially has such large uh, such large companies driven by those sort of those gig workers, if a delivery would be another one. Um, if this works, if this works for Money Farm, and I see no reason why it wouldn't, then I then I suspect yes, they will go after those other companies. Um, with, uh, you know, with those gig workers, if you like. That's very insightful. Sarah, thank you very much for being with us on Fintech Insider News. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you very much, Sarah. I think that was a fantastic overview of really the strategy of working with somebody like a money farm and, and partnering with somebody like an Uber to have a captive set of customers and to really push fintech. Um, anything to add on this one from anybody in the room? I think it's an interesting trend that we start to see where we're almost seeing these companies go B2B. We've seen this before with uh, Scalable Capital partnering with Siemens, I believe it was, in terms of the distribution partner that we had on a few weeks ago with with Adam. Um, so I think increasingly small fintech players, and, and obviously uh, in this context, Money Farm is, is quite a large player, but using the captive audience of all of the Uber drivers that are moving around in terms of doing this, then it, it feels like a, a kind of a marriage made in heaven really is you create an awesome product and allow somebody with a very large community to handle distribution. And as Sarah said in the interview, they've they've done the same thing in the US as well with with similar platforms. So it seems to be that you know the uh, the gig economy companies and fintechs could be a trend we see more of. I, I wonder what Uber get from this? So, because if you if you kind of think actually Uber have now not only monetized their customers, but they're now monetizing their employees, essentially. I don't know that they're monetizing it. This is kind of in place of offering an employee benefits scheme, yeah. because remember, they're not employees. I would be very surprised if there isn't a, um, a some sort of affiliate sort of deal. Kickback, yeah. yeah. That I, I would be super, super surprised for them to, to even needs to offer this type of deal without having an element of kickback in Maybe there in they're getting some upside. I'm sure you've seen Uber has been prosecuted across the globe from France to UK, etc., on, on, on not providing services. I think this really helps them. If they're going to make a little bit of money out of it, everybody's happy. Yeah. The yeah. regulator's happy. The, the individuals working, the drivers are happy. And, it's uh, a bit Machiavellian Uber's though, isn't it? It's like, well, okay, now you forced us to, we'll give you this perk, but we're making money out of you on this perk. And, and when you speak to some Uber drivers as well, like Uber stipulates where you have to get insurance and where you have to get fuel. On one hand, they're using their economy of scale to buy a, a, a certain price that maybe benefits the drivers. On the other hand, you know, they can't get the best deal out of the market because Uber wants to lock in you know something that they've got an affiliate deal on. I think you know 
we sort of lambast banks not being able to move their business models quick enough. But a company who's come in and, like I say, you you know, monetized amazingly something somebody else was already doing, and now monetizing their employees doing it as well. You know, it kind of feels like. Uh, what are they going to be monetizing next? Yeah, they're one to watch. And on that, that's all we have for this week. That is the news. And as a reminder, we're going to be at the Innovate Finance Global Summit in April. Uh, FinTech insiders who want to join can get a 30% discount on tickets with the code FinTech Insider. So if you want to be there and see us uh, and see everything else going on at Innovate Finance, be sure to use the code FinTech Insider. If you like this episode, share the love, tell a friend about FinTech Insider, leave us a review on iTunes and check us out on a 11fs.co.uk. That's all for now.